I wish I could say that. <laughs> Welcome to the British Telegraph. Where to clo- Where to? I wish you could say this. <laughs> I wish I could say anything, Mickey. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 142 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, but please refer to me as Britney Spears from now on. No problem. <laughs> okay, Britney. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> I would say in Jen and I's defence, we are slightly easier to control. I've never been put out of one of our Zoom meetings yet. <laughs> well, Hannah thinks that way, but I just have her permanently in a waiting room. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah's actually in control of these, isn't she? That is I true. Am. I have. Yeah. She is our Jackie Weaver in so many ways. <laughs> Does she have any authority? My favourite bit, personally, was when they cut to one of the guys <laughs> and how how they ended up being who was on the screen. Seems to be no rhyme or reason. Sometimes they just go to an empty chair. But at one point, they went to a guy, <laughs> one of the arseholes, and he had turned round and he had his chair spun round and he had his back to her like he was like protesting the Japanese emperor. What a fucking knobber. Oh, God, it made me quite tense. I thought he was just an idiot who didn't know how to use Zoom. Like just, just like Ringo Starr doing his little self-tape for YouTube. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> I likes Julie's iPad. <laughs> I'm on a call at the moment. <laughs> Hang on. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear God. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I am livid with the Golden Globes for ignoring Michaela Cole. And to be clear, mm-hmm. I'm not saying this because she's a woman or a British woman or a black British woman. I'm saying it because she made the best TV series last year. Debate ends. I try yeah. not to be outraged. You know, everyone's outraged all the time, but this is a reason to mm. be outraged, and I am outraged. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I saw some, some articles recently as well, because you know Jodie Whittaker has left Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. People saying, oh, here's some names that would make a like, great Doctor Who, and one of them on there was Michaela Cole. And I was like, why would we want Michaela Cole on Doctor Who where she could just be writing poor, excellent stuff? That is a bit like... And I'll get to this in Jenny of the Blocks, guys. Spoiler alert, but that is a bit like Emma Hayes being touted as the next AFC Wimbledon manager, (laughs) to be honest. Yeah. They're looking for a new barista in my favourite coffee shop. I think Michaela Cole would be brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jen Offord, and I would like to know how you're supposed to teach someone to chew. Yeah, it it seems tricky. Do they not just do it instinctively? No, Hannah, they do not. (laughs) They go and just spit all their food out. Basically, and if you try showing them how to chew like exaggerated movements in front of them, maybe it's just Lyra. Maybe it's just because she loves me so much and I'm so funny. But she just sits there and looks at me adoringly and laughs. <laughs> she doesn't follow suit, right. unfortunately. When my brother was little, and because of course he's much younger than me, I used to have to do feeding him a lot, and you had to keep your eye on him because it was a bowl. The way he indicated that he didn't want any more was he would just put the bowl on top of his head. <laughs> regardless oh. of whether there was stuff <laughs> left in it. So you really, you couldn't be watching telly doing it. You'd turn around and you'd be like, no! It's just like unidentified <laughs> gloop ran down his head. I hope you could and identify it if you were feeding him. No, it's just mush, isn't it? It's just mush. <laughs> they have like suction things now so that they can't get the fucking bowl off, right. basically. <laughs> too late. Stuck. Too late, people. Too late. Later on, I speak to Dee Holmes from Relate about how coronavirus and lockdown are testing the nation's relationships. Rebecca Watson chats to me about Little Scratch, which is her debut fiction, and it's an inventive day in the life of a slightly hungover woman. 
And Jenny off the blocks, I'll be talking about jobs for the boys. That's an evergreen statement there, isn't it? <laughs> Did you just can't paste that from a different script? Yeah. <laughs> and in Rated or Dated, we try to get our thoughts organised as we watch 1976's Taxi Driver. But first, a long-time coming inquiry, merge should on France, and a bit of good news from the government. I know. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where to quote Lewis and Clark, today is the same as yesterday, but it is also snowing. Have you been out exploring, Hannah? No, not so much. We haven't really got snow left anymore. We've just got like dust in the spotlights, just a couple of things just floating around. People should read Lewis and Clark's diaries because they're amazing, but they have uh, one day in which they talk about like the misery of trying to cross the Rockies and somebody dies and they're eating their own belts and shoes because they're so hungry and then freezing cold. And then the next day, it, it literally the diary entry is, today is much the same as yesterday, but it is also snowing. My neighbour's called Lewis Clark. Really? Just FYI. OK, let's start with some good news, even though this isn't even the good news section. I know. Excellent charity Birthrights has announced it's launching a national inquiry into racial injustice in maternity care. You may have seen this subject all over social media last weekend for very different reasons, a row about colourism in the television industry, which is certainly a conversation worth having. However, behind that are some pretty horrific statistics that black women are four times and Asian women twice as likely to die in childbirth than white women. There are also many other concerns around higher rates of maternal illness, higher numbers of stillbirths and neonatal deaths, and recently, that black and Asian women are more likely to be admitted to hospital with COVID. These concerns are not new and have been in the public domain for a while. And I have to tell you that author and momfluencer... That's for, horrific. Uh, so horrible. I know. Never say it that is again, awful. Jen, please. No, Jen, Sorry. seriously. I mean, even momfluencer would be slightly better. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what they call it, isn't it? Momfluencer. Stop saying it. <laughs> Soz. <laughs> anyway, Candice Brathwaite has been talking about this issue for ages. Brathwaite discusses these issues in her book, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, if you would like to know more about this subject. Back to the inquiry, which will be led by an expert panel of people with lived experience, midwives and obstetricians, healthcare and human rights lawyers and other experts from a variety of fields such as academia and public policy. And it will be chaired by Shaheen Rahman, QC, and supported by legal firm Lee Day. Rahman said, we want to understand the stories behind the statistics to examine how people can be discriminated against due to their race and to identify ways that this inequity can be repressed. And I suppose one of the first questions I would ask is why the fuck successive governments haven't held this inquiry already? If this is something you have any knowledge of or think you could contribute to the call for evidence or maybe chip them a fiver just to help them with this and other amazing work they're doing, check out birthrights.org.uk. So, to France, where protests took place yesterday in support of a woman whose case is in the country's highest court this week. The woman, now an adult, says she was raped by 20 firefighters over a two-year period, starting when she was 13. She is not being named, but is being referred to by the French media and campaigners as Julie. She first met Pierre, a firefighter based at the Bourg-la-Reine fire station in Paris, when he helped her during an anxiety attack in 2008. He later contacted her using her information from her medical file, which, to be clear, would absolutely have included her age. 
and he began grooming her. He demanded she undress on a webcam and when she complied, passed her details to other firefighters who did the same. Over the next two years, 20 firefighters were involved in the abuse and rape of Julie. Three of the men accused admit to having had sex with her, but say it was consensual, despite Julie's diary recording her, quote, terror at the incident, which left her, again, this is a direct quote, paralysed with fear. Today, lawyers will argue that all 20 firefighters who were based at a number of stations should be charged with rape. Currently, only three men are charged with sexual violation because, and here's the kicker, France doesn't have an age of consent enshrined in law. Fucking hell. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. If you thought the fact that firefighters, people you tell children to trust and listen to, were involved in this, if you think that was shocking, strap in. The societal rock goes deeper than that. I know I speak for all of us when I say that we had absolutely no idea France was not in line with the rest of the EU in having an age at which a child becomes capable of consenting to sex. I said, when I saw this, I sent you guys an email. I was like, what do you think the current age of consent is in France? We edged our bets. We both went younger than 16. But we didn't know it was a trick question, Hannah, you bastard. (laughs) Exactly that. Well, I didn't want to say, and then you think, hang on, do I know that? Have I been told that? Have I heard that? Anyway, let's do a compulsory bit of throat clearing and say that I love France. I love its couldn't-give-a-fuck attitude, its militant tendencies, its food, its confusingly hot Prime Minister. <laughs> but, mon Dieu, they need to sort this the fuck out. Absolutely. Here's a selection of historical nuggets to give you an idea of the mood around the age of consent over the last 40-odd years in France. Back in 1977, a number of notable French academics, including darlings of postmodern thinking Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, petitioned the French government to decriminalise all sexual relationships between adults and under-15s. The French papers Liberation and Le Monde also defended that position. There's only one reason you defend that position. Well, let's jump forward to 2018 when, after a push by feminists, a change in the law was proposed that would introduce an age of consent at 15. In fact, if you Google age of consent in France, the first place it sends you is a BBC story saying this change is imminent. But the law was not passed after a government report concluded it would result in, quote, an assumption of guilt. A statement I could take forever unpacking, but it might be easier to say that I am assuming things about guilt here, but largely Mm -hmm. about those people who made that (laughs) statement. Yeah, absolutely. Again. Last month, the Senate backed a bill to make the age of consent 13. Fucking hell. A threshold age considered insufficient by child protection associations. Watch this space. Poor Julie, what that woman has been through and continues to go through is just appalling. It's interesting that there is, of course, the argument that they're in a position of authority and she is under 18, which France does have some laws to cover. That's where the sexual violation bit comes in, right? That's how that comes in, yes. Mm. Also, the fact that he's used her medical records to To contact her. got to be some sort of crime, hasn't it? Or at least, like, you your bosses are telling you to fucking pull your socks up. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's that's 
not a good thing, is it? Like getting Al Capone on tax issues. Yeah. yeah. Like, okay. The data protection we... shit we had to wade through when we just so we could have a mail out. Yeah. Would anyone like some good news? Well, okay, yes, yeah. please. I'm basically Little Miss Sunshine today, aren't I? Well, the government has announced that anyone living unlawfully in the UK will not be at risk of deportation if they book themselves in for a coronavirus jab. They do, of course, have to register with a GP to do this, and the government has stressed that this is not an amnesty, nor does it grant illegal immigrants leave to remain. It is, however, an extension of the government's previous commitment that there would be no check on immigration status of anyone seeking a test or treatment for the virus. So, if you know anyone who might benefit, please do make sure that they are aware of this policy. It's good, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I shower you with not one, but two sexisms. I know, we really are spoiled, aren't we, women? Spare a thought for Tokyo Olympics chief Yoshiro Mori, who was ready to quit over sexist remarks last week. To clarify, that'll be the sexist remarks made by him and wipe those brows birds because he is still very much the Tokyo Olympics chief. Phew. 83-year-old Mori, who is a former Prime Minister of Japan, came under fire after a speech in which he said that a board meeting with lots of women in it would drag on. Adding, if we increase the number of female board members, we have to make sure their speaking time is restricted somewhat. They have difficulty finishing, which is annoying. When asked how many women are actually on the Japanese Olympic Committee's Board of Trustees, which was initially aiming for more than 40% female members, Mori said, We have about seven women at the organising committee, but everyone understands their place. Actually, there are just five women among the board's 24 members, and five is absolutely not 40% of 24. Nor is it the number seven. I find his mistake annoying. Mori later apologised for his remarks, and even later told a Japanese newspaper that he had decided to quit his post after the global criticism erupted over those remarks. But he was convinced to stay after Tokyo 2020 CEO Toshiro Muto and other Olympic officials tearfully begged him to he nearly did the right thing though eh (laughs) and look at that an 83 year old chap trusted to make all sorts of highfalutin decisions even after he's made a duff one so what do you do if you want to portray a 56 year old woman on screen you age up a 35 year old of course and that's why you'll see 35 year old Carrie Mulligan playing 56 year old Edith Perry in Netflix film The Dig a drama based on the real life discovery of Sutton Hoo in the late 1930s In case you were wondering, 58-year-old Ray Fiennes plays 51-year-old archaeology enthusiast Basil Brown. Producers said Nicole Kidman, who's 53, wasn't available. And fair play, Kidman is currently the only working actress in her 50s. What are you going to do? Of course she's not. There are loads of excellent women in their 50s who could have taken on the role. A little double whammy of ageism and sexism there. Thanks to at Palm by the Sea for tweeting this to our attention. And when this is eventually made into a film in the next couple of years, I'd very much like Millie Bobby Brown to play me. <laughs> I think the 17-year-old would capture my middle-aged outrage superbly. Yeah. I mean, Nicole Kidman couldn't do it because Nicole Kidman doesn't look like a 53-year-old woman. I was going to say, she probably looks younger than Carrie Mulligan. Exactly. Yeah. She looks like a haunted doll. Hi, I am joined by Dee Holmes, Senior Practice Consultant at Relate. Hello, Dee. Thank you for joining us. Hello. 
Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm going to assume that you at Relate are very busy at the moment and I'll explain my thinking. Financial insecurity, health insecurity, grief, childcare problems, jobs are much more stressful. Now that seems to be a perfect storm. And if you add into that the fact that people are living in very close quarters, that seems to to me that that would put pressure on a relationship. So I've got my assumptions, but I also am seeing some anecdotal evidence that the current situation is taking its toll on the nation's relationships. Am I right? Are you seeing a rise in people coming to you? Yes. I mean, we're, we're always busy, really. We're often busy in this January period as well, it's yeah. the post-Christmas and the post-holiday. Clearly, we went completely to digital, as in, you know, Zoom, webcam appointments and phone appointments when things hit last March. And we've been pretty much operating solely in that way. So obviously, there's no face-to-face counselling, which which will mean some people won't come to us if that's what they really want. But I think mm. as the year has gone on, people have become so much more used to the online world in their social life and their personal life as well, and, and their professional lives. So we're certainly seeing people seeking that support and that help, as well as our sort of traditional counselling We've also, last October, launched what we're calling the Relate Hub, which is a 30-minute free sort of live chat that people can use. It's for anybody in England funded by the lottery um, who's suffering with any relationship issues that are sort of caused by COVID. And I think we could probably say that most of those things that are happening to people, whether they're caused by COVID, but they're certainly going to be exacerbated by COVID. So, yeah. that are coming to you what sort of thing are you seeing that's being brought up we're seeing an awful lot of issues that are around parenting I think because obviously that has sort of come to the fore with people being thrust at home with their children and different ways of parenting and especially around the whole homeschooling what you force your children to do what you give way on for social for harmony at home and I think that has come out quite a lot for couples as an area of disagreement. And there is less time for parents. There's less time for everybody. So people are, you know, living at the end of their tether in some ways, trying to fit work in yeah. schooling, no social life, no time for themselves. And then you add into that a disagreement about something. So we've certainly seen quite a few things around parenting sex and intimacy is another area that's come up because of that lack of time alone that people have and we've also seen a slight rise in in recently in people discovering affairs and things like that 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 obviously (laughs) yeah hadn't been you know might have been able to have been hidden if you weren't living 24 7 together yeah that's interesting because I know someone who's who, who runs a hotel And they've been running a hotel throughout all of this. And there's been a couple of occasions when I've said to them, who is actually staying in your hotel? Who's in a hotel at the minute? And and at the start, it was NHS Mm. staff quite often that were not wanting to go home and infect their Mm. families. But but the other day, he said to me, oh, it's largely builders from Liverpool and men who are conducting extramarital affairs. And I I was like, really? And he said, that's my guess, is uh, who a lot of those people are. Mm. And we had this conversation about how, interestingly, about sort of the logistics of conducting an mm. affair, if you wanted to, and how perhaps the level of what might be considered an affair has kind of come down slightly. And what I mean by that is, I remember seeing the brilliant Joan Rivers interviewed once, and she was talking about one of her marriages had broken up. 
And she said she found out that her husband had taken a woman out to dinner and bought her flowers. And whoever was interviewing her said, that's not an affair. And she said, to me, it is. Mm-hmm. And I wonder now whether secretive Zoom calls and things like that are now more. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. that that's a very interesting question. And I, I think I can really, you know, I think that's very true what she says about to me, it is. And I think a lot of the time, you know, couples, I mean, what is an affair is a really good point to start often in mm. the counselling. And I will often discuss with couples, well, what does that mean to you? And I've certainly seen people where somebody having lunch with with a, another a person who they're keeping from their partner or going out for coffee or having texts with them or an emotional, what we might call an emotional connection, people saying, well, actually, that's much worse for me than if I thought that person had gone and just had a one-night stand with someone. Mm. And then other people who would say, no, absolutely, that's okay, but if they'd actually slept with someone else, that would be no no go. So I think we all perhaps have different ideas. I think as a simple simple sort of thing I might say sometimes is I think an affair is anything that perhaps takes you away from your main primary relationship and is secret mm. is something you're not sharing and I mean in some ways I think for people if they've got a partner who spends all their time on the golf course or spends all their time on the phone to their sister that can feel to the other person like there is another person in the relationship, you know, whether it's the golf course or or yeah. actually a si- sibling or friend. So, I mean, sometimes I think it's anything that that takes you out away from that relationship and is sort of secret as well. So, I mean, yes, if you're having lunch with a colleague and you buy them a bunch of flowers, why haven't you told your partner about that? That would be yeah. my question. So, And that's probably where Joe Rivers was coming from. It, was, it so. wasn't maybe what he did. It was the fact it was secret. Yeah, What he intended. And yeah. what he intended, yeah. That's really interesting. How difficult is it for you to do your job at the minute? Because we were talking a little bit earlier, right at the start of lockdown, we interviewed Hillary from NACOA, which is the National Association for the Children of Alcoholics, which runs a helpline. Right, yeah. And it's not everyone's method mm. of choice of mm. communicating, partly because they're in their house Mm. and it doesn't feel like maybe like a neutral space Mm. which is uh, uh, quite often what you see but partly because they're worried people will overhear Mm. conversations I'm guessing that's been a problem I think that's true I mean I mean I think initially there was a lot of sort of perhaps anxiety from clients and from counsellors who this was new technology and so as well as the experience of the counselling session which obviously has its own anxieties around it and what what might be brought and what's going to be talked about and how it's going to go and an end and the boundaries so you you add on to that the will this crash out will the person be able to connect you know what if my computer runs out of battery and I can't find the charge you know all those things so you know that was obviously quite an initial thing and I think as people have got more experienced you know on both sides they've found it easier so yes invariably if you have a glitch technology wise that's an added problem in a in a situation I mean, there's also the rejigging of the boundaries that I think we've had to really consider as an organisation and and discuss with our counsellors and supervisors and things. Because, as you say, it's not a neutral space. So the situations arise where, you know, clients will come to a session in a room and they'll probably have a cup of coffee they've bought on the way in. But, you know, what do you do if clients appear at eight o'clock at night in front of you in their pyjamas with a bottle of wine? You know, that's that sort of throws the whole thing. And and you talked earlier about, you know, pets and we and that's the other thing, you know, people can interrupt, you get pets coming in, 
you know, we've had lots of situations that have meant they've had to be discussed and the boundaries put in place. But I think the upside of that is that for some people, they feel a lot more comfortable in their own home and they don't feel they've had to sort of drive, find somewhere to park, you know, find the building, get themselves in there, you know, sit in a waiting room, all the stuff that can add stress and anxiety. They just turn on their laptop. They're sitting in their comfy chair. So, you know, I think there's pluses and minuses to all of those issues. And I think the the less travel for everybody, and certainly when you have winter nights, you know, we've been able to keep going through snow and things like that when sometimes yeah. we're having that, should we stop the counselling for tonight because is it going to be too snowy later, etc. The other area where for us, I mean, we obviously offer couple counselling, young persons, children and family counselling. And we found with some family counselling, it's been really useful because you might have the family there, but you know, the the 10-year-old or 12-year-old child might not actually really want to be there for the whole 50 minutes of the session. So they're able to wander off and turn the telly on. Whereas if you've got a family coming to the centre, you can't put the 10-year-old out in the waiting room (laughs) for 20 minutes. You you know, so I think some counsellors have said it's been really useful for some aspects of the flexibility of the work. While we were explaining at the start that there are a lot of reasons putting strain on relationships at the moment, obviously your job is at Relate is to help people come to terms with whether or not this relationship is, maybe you won't agree with these words, but, you know, worth saving, <laughs> worth carrying on with, worth investing your time in. But the period in which people have the opportunity to do that, it has been perhaps it's that period that's been most affected by what's going on at the moment. So say, for example, you're living in the same house, you're in different rooms, whereas you might go out for an evening, you know, you might go to the cinema just to get out and get a bit of breathing space, or you might go around to see a friend and get some emotional support Mm. there. That is a wall gone. Mm. What sort of impact is that having? Do you think people might go from sort of the decision to split up and splitting up way quicker than maybe that they have in the past? Yes, I think, I mean, early on last year, obviously there were people who were probably at, at those places in their lives where they were thinking this relationship might be about to end or we've got problems. And so I think that we will have had initially a bit of a delay of people who thought, well, we'll let this sort out and then I'll sort that out. And then as it goes on a bit, they start to think, well, how long can I delay? Um, And as you say, there will be some, there were some people who, you know, actually of what you've described there about the things you do to escape a difficult situation. And I've, I've certainly think there are some people where, the lack of being able to go to the gym every night or out with their friends after work has meant that they've been forced back with their partner and actually maybe addressed things and started talking and and found found a new way together. So I think there is definitely been a make or break sort of thing about it. You know, if things aren't good, then they might well get a lot worse. But there could be a chance if it wasn't that bad that you might actually suddenly say gosh right this is happening there's a whole thing going on out there that's way out of our control so let's try and control what we've got going on here and can we do something about it this is our time and I think also the true about early relationships in early stages you know we talked a lot in the first lockdown about people who suddenly moved in together and accelerated (laughs) their relationship in fact we were talking the other day about how there are lots of relationships now where people have been living together maybe for several months 
but they've not met each other's families because of this whole situation. So normally you might well have met your, you know, your, yeah. your partner's family, even if it's not in a traditional come and meet my parents, but you would have gone out for a drink with their brother or seen them at something or others. So there's this whole weirdness about some of that relationships that are very enmeshed and progressed on for the couple but the families are thinking well, I've never even met this person sort of don't know what they look yeah. like except on a <laughs> sort of thing Th- that's the equivalent of I had a t-shirt on the other day and somebody said to me is that a new t-shirt and I said well I think I bought it in February yes. last year so technically yes <laughs> nobody's ever seen, seen it before it, yeah. have you got a new boyfriend well not really I've had him for a year but technically yeah, I've had him for a year I just don't take him outside much <laughs> Can I ask you, if we've got people listening who are thinking, I am in this situation, I think we are like heading down the road where we need to get to relate. Can you just explain really what it is that relate offers? You know, do people have to come as couples? Can they come alone uh, and how that works for them? I mean, as I said earlier, I'd certainly say if you're sort of considering and you're thinking, should I come, shouldn't I or whatever, then I mean, by all means, go on our website, relate.org.uk. And if you look, there is a button to press to tap, you know, to go onto this, what we call the hub for three 30 minute chat. So that will give you a bit of an insight and help you to think further forward of what the issues are. The most traditional way is, yes, through the website where the number is or, you know, to to ring to make an appointment. What traditionally happens is people make have an assessment appointment and people can come as a couple. People can come individually. People sometimes come on their own first and then their partner decides they will come along afterwards. We would always see people if we were seeing a couple, we would always give them individual time as part of you know the assessment process and seeing them in counselling, because that's quite helpful to give them a bit of space as well as doing all the couple work. And then have that assessment that would give you an opportunity to sort of really hone down what the issues are, because I think sometimes people coming to an assessment with their partner I mean, the amount of times I've heard people say, look at their partner and say, I didn't know that. And the partner said, mm. well, I've been telling you it for five years. And they said, well, I didn't hear it like that. And the power of sometimes hearing that person say it to another person really helps. So sometimes that, that's a really useful for what are we coming here for? What are our goals? You know, what are we going to engage in? And then invariably, when people are in ongoing counselling, biggest question people ask is how long how long and it's a bit of how long is a bit of string we don't aim to be a long-term agency so I mean usually we do a lot of sort of six session work often but we also I think probably on average sessions are between sort of six to 18 really that's that's the, the fair average I would say so somewhere in that that ballpark and you know it is about what works for you I mean Sometimes people come, they start communicating a bit better after two or three sessions and they think we'll go home and we'll carry this on at home. Other people start to unearth bigger issues from the past that they feel they want to start to explore and they realise the impact on now. So I think you can look at it in two ways. You can come and look at the what is going on now? How can we just communicate a bit better? How can we learn to be nicer to each other, understand each other, hear each other? And then sometimes it's how can we really look at what's gone on in our past and how that's affecting and impacting now? And, you know, whilst we can't change our past, we can sometimes learn to understand, Mm. you know, how our family system of our childhood is affecting our family system now in our adult lives. That's interesting because I think for a lot of people, maybe people like me who, who don't work on the front line of anything 
and therefore have had the luxury to be quite philosophical about the last year. I think the whole thing has been an opportunity to question mm. how I live. Am I happy? What mm. changes can I make? Or would I, if we, if we come out the other side of this, what, what, what different person? What will I do differently? Yeah. What mm. do I want to be? I don't know whether that's helpful in marriages because it, it, it reaffirms that you are with the person that you want to be or mm. it's unhelpful in the, if you makes you think I, I don't want to mm. go back to that. So I wonder what, what would you say to people about their expectations that they should be when when they come to you. Do people think that you are going to save their marriage or do people come with a slightly, this is the last waiting room before divorce attitude? Yeah, I, th- I think it does vary. And I think it, you know, neither is very helpful really. And I think sometimes when couples come, there might often be a split agenda. You know, they might come with the things aren't going too well, but one of those, one part of that couple might already be sort of down the road out of this relationship. You mm. know, I often, I often think of it's a bit like a, a journey and the couple are there in front of you and one of them's actually at the crossroads at the next road junction and the other one's here so sometimes they can the expectation of the person who feels the relationship the other person's leaving can be or the late will stop them they'll they'll talk them out of it it will all be okay and actually we 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 can't you know we can we can help people to look at what's happened understand it and likewise i think people do invariably often come a bit too late a discovered affair is often a trigger for people reaching out for counselling. And actually, when that's happened, you're already, you know, quite a long way down the road. Things have obviously yeah. been going wrong. One of those people has been emotionally and intimately out of that relationship for the length of that affair. And the other person has been completely unknowing of it until the point it comes out. So I always think that it is it is a shame. But I think it is quite difficult sometimes for people to know we all have ups and downs in life in in all our relationships and certainly in couple relationships and when when is this just a down that will be better in a bit and when is it really on the way down and it's not coming up again and i think that's that's probably the trick to knowing mm. when to seek the help really i think also that when people come and things do end in some cases you can do a really good piece of counseling work in helping that couple to move on to sort of understand and certainly if they've got children it's really helpful Mm. because you're still going to be parents to those children even if you're not a couple anymore and so sometimes the work you know can be helpful in helping them to communicate better about the children going forward communication good communication is the root of everything and that's what hopefully coming to relate helps you to start to do as a couple well, that seems a brilliant point to end it. That's, that's a very clear communication message. Dee, this has been really interesting. Thank you ever so much for your time. Lovely. So, Mickey, I accidentally opened an Instagram account. Sorry, what now? Yeah, I wanted to look at something on Instagram that quite a few people had sent me and I have no idea what I'm doing with Instagram and I was doing something else whilst on my phone and... I managed to sign in, uh, which it turns out means... <laughs> I managed open. to enter all of my details. <laughs> Didn't even realise I'd done it till I got an email to say I had six followers. <laughs> I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? I have an Instagram account. Now, I will close it. So my advice to our listeners would be, don't follow me on Instagram because you'll get nothing and then nothing. Where should they go instead, Hannah? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. You are the Instagram person. We have an Instagram account, right? 
We do. We have at Standard Issue Podcast. I'd like to say that I am not the Instagram person, but you will find my flailing attempts at being entertaining via photographs, mainly of the zoo, the zooniliums. There's rats and a cat and a dog and occasionally Peggy and Joan get in on there. And sometimes, you know, some excellent women that deserve your time and attention. It's very, it's very on brand Standard Issue. So how do people go about, you know, looking at videos of my cat having a fight with a printer? <laughs> they just go to at standard issue podcast and there she is in all her she definitely won that fight glory she didn't i am joined on the zoom by journalist and my new favorite author rebecca watson rebecca hello hello so your novel is set in an office it's basically a historical novel now <laughs> yeah, it's so nostalgic. Okay, let's talk Little Scratch, your debut novel. It started as a short story, one that won the White Review Short Story Prize, and it is extraordinary. On a basic level, it's a day in the life of a slightly hungover, unnamed woman. She's an every woman, really, but it is delivered as a stream of consciousness. The prose is laid out almost like poetry, with blank spaces, repeated words trailing across, up, down the page. And it's not just a barrage of our protagonist's thoughts but it's quite often a collision a bit of a car crash which as a reader makes for a a feeling of immediacy it's an intense visceral experience like present tense squared or something what's the desire to write something so different in form a conscious one i love present tense squared Uh, i'm going to start stealing that and using it myself it wasn't like I kind of set out and I was like, oh, yeah, I've been fancy doing something weird. Um, <laughs> I'm quite grateful for the fact that I can really remember the kernel of the book, which was essentially this moment where I, something happened in real life where a colleague asked me a question and I couldn't come up with an answer to the question. It was what book you'd read recently. And so the first thing I wrote of Little Scratch was that moment um, I stole from life purely because I was kind of fascinated by that, like, immediate moment where you can't think of one very clear potentially very easy thing mm-hmm. um and yet you suddenly become very in tune with like everything around you your physical surroundings the face waiting to hear your answer and how all of these kind of moments in a minute 30 seconds are kind of massive when i had that experience my thought was you know how would i write this to prove the kind of bombardment and um like overwhelmment the kind of weird things happening simultaneously is it possible to get that on the page um and I felt very frustrated by the kind of linearity of you know waiting for the reader to get to the end of the paragraph the end of the sentence to to know something that happened at the beginning and so that's what happened that was the charge in answering that question it became like a pressure point and really the the page like broke up in front of me um and it felt like a kind of weird pretentious revelation (laughs) once you established how you were going to form little scratch did it ever trip you up during the writing process it didn't trip me up because it was really like a system for me like i could see vocally on the page how it was laid out but sometimes rather than tripping me up it was more it was more like i was kind of I was like bullying myself because I have to follow the system. <laughs> like once you've designed something on the page, you've, you've got to go with it. Yeah. And so there are points where I was like, really? And I'd be like, yeah, no, you have to do this now. Like you can't, sometimes I have the instinct to, I don't know, skip a moment or 
just stick within the head or just outside of the head. And so the thing that really excited me from quite early on with this project was the fact that I couldn't skip any of the things that writers often want to skip. And so you had those kind of challenges or hiccups that would constantly appear. Yeah, we used to do a thing called Dunleavy Does Disaster where we'd watch a disaster film and we would play disaster bingo, like what tropes have come up in this disaster film. And Hannah had one that was like, where do they go to the toilet? But you have like absolutely (laughs) covered that. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. I tried to get that in quite early. I was like, okay, I'll give her a poo in the morning just so that the reader's (laughs) aware that we're here for everything. (laughs) I found that when I first started to read it, I almost tried to read it as if it was poetry quite slowly and that did not work for me and I had to just fucking lunge at it and (laughs) like throw myself into this process of of being in her head and having that immediacy. It's that thing where you have to just push the reader over that line because once you start reading I think you find the rhythm of it kind of there's a kind of intuition because what I'm doing is you know echoing thought patterns and the ways in which your mind naturally kind of leaps and those associations should feel very real. Some people will will hate it because they don't want things to look weird and I'm fine with that. Embrace the weirdness, people. It's it's brilliant. It's really <laughs> rewarding. As we read, it becomes clear that our narrator is processing or attempting to process trauma. She's been raped and she's trying her damnedest to bury that memory. I don't think I've ever read that process of dealing with something so, so destabilising, summed up so well as in the line, I cannot get through the day if everything brings up something else. That internal battle, was that something you really wanted to address? Whether in, in writing or in real life, either characters or people, survivors of like rape or sexual assault, the kind of first thing that's demanded of them is a like smooth, linear narrative. Mm-hmm. It's being able to say, this is what happened from start to finish. Uh, this is how I feel about it. This is the enemy. This is the kind of victim all of these experiences are having to be kind of pushed into this very simplistic, very reductive formula, which completely obviously ignores the fact that memory generally fractures after trauma. Exactly that, because there's also a pressure to to keep that narrative exactly the same every time you retell it, which is Mm -hmm. this constant demand that it's retold to this person and this person, because they're looking for discrepancies. Yeah, even though, like, even if you were just, like, if, if you asked me, how did I get up this morning? And I, walk, I, you know, talked through, like, every single detail of how I got up. Like, that would be different if you asked me it in half an hour's time tomorrow. Memory is in itself an impossible and deceitful thing, which we pretend is more reliable and more like this kind of bank we can withdraw from. So when I was writing Little Scratch, I think, quite early on I was trying to look at ways in which you could dismantle that how do you tell the story of someone who is suffering from trauma who has experienced something in a way which just kind of evades and denies linearity that line you picked out about um how can I get through the day if something always brings up something else I just need to pray to myself there but just about that um <laughs> but that line you know is kind of the book right like it's constantly you're move, you're bouncing on something else whether it's like her her like joking and like kind of punning and the way in which she kind of quickly skips to like the next thing or makes a joke out of something or or see something in the street which distracts her from the thought that she already had there's this constant you know like barrage of just just existing in itself as a barrage um and so like getting someone to inhabit the mind of someone who is not just 
going through life as a parent's experience, but also suffering from trauma, like a really important way of kind of showing, you know, the struggle of, of anything. Yeah, it's interesting what you just said there, because identity, how we identify what or who our true self is, are big topics, you know, hot potatoes even. And it's endlessly fascinating to me because... And I might be about to out myself as batshit, so bear with me. But I think (laughs) self is really slippery because we are, and as Little Scratch's narrator is, this cacophony of quite often conflicting thoughts. And actually reading it and reading her made me feel a bit normal. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that was definitely something I wanted to, to look at, you know. And, you know, so with this, you know, because obviously this book is inside someone's head, day in the life, non-stop. It's basically fixing all of those things that are mentally fleeting. I really wanted to look at that that idea of kind of contradictions and even like a thought can come into your head that you might not actually even think or believe or feel and yet it can still come through your head, be formed in, you know, eloquent or uneloquent, ineloquent phrasing and then leave. And you may not even have the time to really consider whether you believe it or not, but it's already passed through your head. And so kind of our relationship between ourselves and the things which we frequently experience or think is really confusing. Yeah, I thought it was very important that you have that kind of multiplicity, the way in which a person is essentially like lots of different things that don't exist for very long. Yeah, I think in writing, we're always very interested in like the unknowability of other people, but we often kind of rely on the protagonist or the main character being very predictable and actually they're equally unknowable. We are, as we've established, very much in our narrator's head, hearing her inner voice, and you might already be on top of this, but I recently discovered that not everyone has an inner voice and I (laughs) I cannot imagine how peaceful that must be. Did you know that? Yeah, I did. Um, I remember my friend at um, university was like obsessed this she she found it out i think that she hears yeah so she she thinks in sentences and spent like the next week just asking everyone like people we didn't really know (laughs) like we'd be in a club and she'd be like right how do you think i think it's a really interesting idea i actually think they think in both ways but i think some people have like kind of some stuff which is kind of you know not actually brought into phrases and others that are very much in phrases but yeah i i mean obviously my protagonist does think in phrasing because otherwise it couldn't be a book so that was quite a key decision for me you know obviously like I had to really resist that when I was writing because naturally when I write something down my instinct is to go okay I verb subject whatever full stop it it was quite freeing to completely evade that and and just go straight into this natural this fragment and kind of like jumping to the association I think there's a lot of pressure, particularly on female characters, to be relatable. And if they're not relatable on some level, it's considered a failure because there's still that thought that, you know, the male experience is universal, but female experience is niche and uninteresting unless you can go, oh, yeah, that's me. She's talking about me. They're talking about me. I've got to say that is bullshit just before I say, oh, man, I related so hard. I related (laughs) so hard. (laughs) Bullshit, but also tick. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Did you want to write an every woman? Was that something that you set out to do, or did she just happen? I think I always knew that she was going to be relatable just because I was trying to 
pin down those very kind of everyday qualities of experience and so really trying to look at like those kind of things that we experience in a day that we don't really consider that we've experienced because they're so normal mm-hmm. um and so kind of attaching all of those things into the narrative and also want to be funny and i think humor instantly implies relatability as well yeah it is very very funny as much as she's dealing with this trauma and that is at the forefront no it's not at the forefront it's in the background of her brain the whole time (laughs) she's so so funny there's a kindly woman in our protagonist's office who makes her tea smiles at her and she makes her feel very welcome or, or at least a bit more welcome in a place that has alienated her but our protagonist can't ever remember this woman's name only that it begins with the letter r is that you, Rebecca? Are you in there looking after our girl? <laughs> Bingo! Yeah, um, yeah. I think this was it's, it's funny. I kind of put this, this in for several reasons, and she's very she's very friendly with the protagonist, and the protagonist kind of is, I would say, fond of her, um, which was important because I felt like the protagonist would like the writer because the writer is kind of like the god right who creates them so they have to be like a fan of them and there's one point where she like looks at this colleague and like admires her hair or something like reflects of like Auburn in her hair and I was like is this a vain thing to write and I was like but no she has to like me like this is the whole point like I created her it kind of it was like a two twofold thing firstly yeah, I was very aware of accusations of autofiction or just generally it's quite common for young female writers to be assumed to be professional um and so I just quite enjoyed having a literal signpost like if someone says the protagonist is you I'd be like no the colleague next to her is me um so it's a very convenient you know character to write in and this book does kind of play with ideas of autofiction and assumptions that people like to make essentially and so yeah, the second reason that I used it is because I was aware that I was kind of borrowing from my environment in terms of like I work for in a newsroom, like I'm a journalist. And so it kind of made sense if I was writing my environment for me to be there. And so some people might think, oh, well, you've written your environment so that protagonist is you. And so it, it kind of felt like a, a play, a kind of teasing thing to be like, well, yes, this is my environment um, and, and here I am elsewhere. Little Scratch is very, very much a fiction. It's not memoir, it's not autofiction. And I wondered, with a writing form that is so in someone else's head, how hard is it to separate yourself from your character? Yeah, uh, difficult. Obviously, as you say, like it's, it's fiction and, you know, her trauma is certainly not my experience of trauma, nor is her kind of uh, experience of rape my experience. And so it was kind of interesting keeping those two things separate, and it's quite important to. But it was also quite invasive because her voice is very loud and very performative. <laughs> it was really intense. It was kind of amazing, and I think it means retrospectively I now really hold that character as, as something real to me. So it's kind of a special thing, but yeah, intense. That intensity, that vitality, that immediacy is actually, it's its really comforting. Because obviously we're in this weird, dark period after Me Too opened people's eyes and then it was quickly like, oh, well, we've got one guy, you know, like, we're just, oh, yeah, he's in prison now. We'll just, just move on. Come on, women, come on. But 
it's comforting knowing you're not alone and I think she will make a lot of women feel and realise that they're not on their own that those those conversations she has with herself where she she does do that could I have done something differently that we're told we shouldn't have but we do still have it's really important Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that they are part of the process and you will you will deal with that trauma however you need to deal with it yeah I completely agree I'm I'm glad you say that and I I definitely wanted to feel that way you know that I don't know, you, you don't really, I certainly read about that experience like post assault when you're, when you're kind of reckoning, that, that moment of reckoning essentially, and not that it ever really ends. Um, I mean, it, it might be kind of resolved, but the, I, I don't think, I think it's still possible to kind of house those questions or confusions again. And even, even talking about, yeah, a resolution feels a bit kind of silly, but that, that kind of moment when it's particularly like a tussle. And it's, it's all done internally. But I love that she still has an ownership of, if not herself and her thoughts, they are sometimes slippery, but she's got an ownership of her body. She still fancies a, a him, her boyfriend. She still wants to find joy in that body. And that is so rare to, to see or to read or to hear when we're talking about women who've been sexually assaulted. It's like all ownership is taken away. And I fucking loved that she was still like, <laughs> I still fancy him. I still want to get down and dirty with him. This is still mine. Yeah, it's exactly that authority I really wanted her to have. Um, and I think often it's almost because like the discussions around rape and assault are so complicated and people are so scared of mixing rape and sex. It's easier to talk about uh, survivors or victims as unsexual beings. Um, but I think when I was writing this book, it was I was quite clear that I wanted both those to coexist and to exist as separate entities to not really overlap. Little Scratch is published by Faber and available now from all good bookshops slash online because bookshops aren't open. I am expecting to see it on a lot of award lists. I mean, it's not any pressure to you because you've already done the writing, but I would be very (laughs) surprised if it didn't get nominated for a shit ton of awards. Where can people find out what else you're up to, please, Rebecca? Well, I am far too active on social media um, and I also have a website which is rebeccawatson.co.uk which I put all my events and stuff on there Brilliant, thank you so much for chatting to me Thanks for having me, it's been fun You play ball like a girl Go on, do one kid Jenny off the blocks Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we make a sliding tackle on the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. You may have heard in the news last week the very exciting story that a woman was on the shortlist to fill the vacant role of head coach at men's football club AFC Wimbledon. Obviously, that woman was Chelsea women's manager Emma Hayes. I had, I'm sure like many of you, mixed emotions about this story. On one hand, it would be fantastic to see women managing men's teams, but on the other, I'd be really sad for women's football to lose Emma Hayes. But there are so many things to unpick here. So I saw a tweet last week by the Women's Hour account, which I have to say I thought was missing the point entirely. They asked, are you a woman who loves men's football? Is it a welcoming space? It's not really a welcoming space to men, to be honest. Football isn't really a welcoming space, full stop, especially if you fuck it up. Just ask Premier League referee Mike Dean, who said he was receiving death threats this week after a bit of a cock-up at the weekend. 
It's not like you're a woman, you go to a football match and people are arseholes to you. I'm a season ticket holder at Charlton Athletic and I have been to matches on my own. I see other women there on their own as well. I don't pull up a pew and get told by the guy next to me, well, hey there, little lady, shouldn't you be in the kitchen? Because that's not really how it works and it's so much more insidious than that. The space where there really is a problem, as ever, is online. But then that's the same across most sectors. Because why not bosh out a rape threat when you're a bit miffed with someone? And that is the area where I think football really is unwelcoming. It's a fickle business. And I actually think Emma Hayes or any female manager would be welcomed by, I'm not going to say 99.9%, which is what I initially wrote down. Let's say 80%. Not everyone is going to welcome a female manager. But I think that the majority of football fans would actually be fine with a female manager as long as they're winning. But fucking hell, she'd better win. A female manager is not going to get the same period of grace as, say, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did at Manchester United. And no way is she walking into a decent job at a new club after a shitty run somewhere else like Phil Chuffing Neville did. We also need to talk about how revealing this whole episode has been about the perception of the women's game. Emma Hayes is more than qualified to manage any team, male or female, and here's why. Because it's the same game. She's hugely successful as Chelsea women's manager. Since joining the club in 2012... As the then only female manager in the Women's League, she's won the league three times, the FA Cup twice, the League Cup and the Community Shield both once. Chelsea regularly make it to the later stages of the Champions League as well. And yes, Chelsea are a wealthy club, but the women's game doesn't benefit from that wealth in the same way because the financial fair play rules are completely different and women's clubs are actually subject to a salary cap for players. Please understand that when I say this, I mean no disrespect whatsoever to AFC Wimbledon. My own club are in the same league as them, which is the third tier of men's football. But what I don't understand is just by virtue of being a men's team, this is seen as a step up for Hayes, who is demonstrably more successful as a manager than they are as a club. Hayes herself, when questioned if Wimbledon could afford her, responded, absolutely not, and I applaud that, I really do. Now, I have wondered in the past if Hayes has been a bit too quick to dismiss sexism, and I think this is something that happens quite a lot in women's sport, possibly because women don't want to mark themselves out as, in inverted commas, troublemakers. She said stuff before about endless comparisons between men's and women's football, can't we just appreciate the game in its own right, etc. And I kind of agree with her, but... You know, come on, lads, share the fucking spoils. Let's not be picking over the scraps. But I do think I'm starting to understand more where she's coming from. Speaking after the reports, I winced a little bit when I read the quote, we spend too much time talking about gender and ethnicity instead of quality candidates. But she went on to say, women's football is something to celebrate and the quality and achievements of all the females I represent, it's an insult to them that we talk about women's football being a step down with the dedication and the commitment and the quality they have. When the football world's ready to adhere to diversity codes so that BAME communities plus women get the opportunities in football, then I'll see that as a step forward. This is not a conversation about Emma Hayes and AFC Wimbledon, but we should be having a larger conversation about creating opportunities across the diverse spectrum so that opportunities in the men's game are not limited to those in privileged positions. Hear, hear. I have to say, I do think that if it is true that she was on the shortlist, I do think that is ultimately good news. Absolutely. It's, it's a huge step forwards and, you know, we can't deny that for a second. But yeah, I think the rhetoric that followed that story has been extremely problematic. Anyway, some good news or more good news. 
if you want to put a positive spin on it. And I have two pieces of good news for you this week. What? I know. Little Miss Sunshine at it again. No one has ever called me Little Miss Sunshine, FYI, apart from myself earlier in this podcast. In cycling, it's been announced that the women's tour will be broadcast for the first time by Eurosport and that Sky Sports have signed a new multi-year broadcast partnership with England Netball. More of this, please. That's all for me this week. I've wanged on for long enough and I'll be back next week with more women's sport. But until then, you can find me on Twitter where I am at Inspiragen if you've got any opinions on this or other sporty topics. Hello and welcome to this week's Rated or Dated. Mickey, it was your choice this week. In which film were we watching someone push a telly off the side and smashing it like they were one of my cats? <laughs> it was very much like the equivalent of a cup of tea in Peggy, wasn't it? I see a lot of Peggy in Travis Bickle, but maybe <laughs> we could get to that. Well, yeah, Travis Bickle, this week we watched Martin Scorsese's 1976 psychological thriller and Robert De Niro vehicle, see what I did there, Taxi Driver. I watched it last night and my shoulders are still up by my ears. I'm going to start by saying something not to do with Taxi Driver, but something to do with whenever I watch a film with young Robert De Niro in it, is it always makes me worry about my future nose. Because I, I kind of forget that he used to have a normal size nose, but of course they just keep growing. And now I'm like, oh yeah, mine's, mine's in trouble. It's going to be massive. I feel like I'm going to have to look this up now. It's Robert massive these nose. days, Jen. And he's, he's very handsome in Taxi Driver. He is handsome, uh, isn't he? I was surprised You take away that. his personality. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's attractive, to be fair. So film-wise, I'm actually going to start by saying every single piece I saw written about this, and I was expecting it, referred to Jodie Foster's character Iris, who our hero, question mark, more on that later, attempts to rescue as a, quote, child prostitute. And it has left me raging because a 12-year-old cannot consent to sex, let alone consent to selling herself, and the term suggests she's complicit in her abuse. A series of reports on child sexual exploitation scandals in Rochdale, Rotherham, Oxford and Telford revealed that abused children were repeatedly dismissed for making poor choices and having problematic lifestyles. So, you know, language matters. And I really needed to get that off my chest. Fair dues. Yeah, that was something I thought about. Actually, having seen her described that way before, I was thinking about Hannah's very good, very brilliant and very bleak interview with the, can't remember their name. Internet Watch Foundation. Exactly that, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Does all of that mean Iris needs rescuing by an alienated insomniac, non-traumatised ex-marine stumbling through life ignorant of social conventions? No, absolutely not. Nobody needs that. So Scorsese's study of Travis Bickle, a 26-year-old Marine turned New York night cabbie, hardened enough to drive his yellow box into roughest houses areas such as Brooklyn and Harlem, was considered controversial from its inception, and so it was made on a shoestring budget. It went on to be a huge critical and commercial success, nominated for four Academy Awards, including De Niro for Best Actor, Foster for Best Supporting Actress, and indeed for Best Picture, where it lost out to another tale of an Italian-American in a tough world. Jen, any ideas? Hey, Yes, I do. It's rocky, isn't it? I thought it was throw mama from the train. <laughs> <laughs> that came second. The film was booed at the Cannes Film Festival for its graphic violence. And indeed, in order to avoid an X-rating, Scorsese had the colours desaturated in that final or second to final scene, making the brightly coloured blood less prominent. 
Mega violent or not, the film was also considered culturally, historically or aesthetically significant by the US Library of Congress and in 1994 was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. As this is a De Niro movie, there is of course a fun fact or two about his method acting. So De Niro obtained a taxi driver's licence and when on a break from filming a movie he was filming in Rome called 1900, he would pick up a taxi and drive around New York for a couple of weeks. His improvised You Talking to Me is ranked number 10 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes and is apparently inspired by Bruce Springsteen, who De Niro saw say the line on stage. De Niro also lost £35 for the role and listened repeatedly to a taped reading of the diaries of criminal Arthur Bramer. Who's that? Well, Bramer shot presidential candidate George Wallace in 1972 and is one of the main inspirations for taxi driver scriptwriter Paul Schrader, who, fun fact, had been living in his car just prior to writing Taxi Driver, which he knocked out in a fortnight. And he also name-checks Jean-Paul Sartre's existential novel Nausea and John Ford's 1956 film The Searchers as inspo for the plot. So let's just do a brief rundown of the plot. Alienated loner Travis Bickle can't sleep, and so he drives his cab around the neon-lit underbelly of New York at a time when New York was mostly underbelly. Along the way, he clumsily attempts to date Betsy, a woman he's idealised without knowing, and clumsily attempts to befriend Iris, a kid in a lot of trouble. But the sleaze and the dysfunction Bickle sees on a nightly basis turns his thoughts ever more violent as he wishes for, quote, a real rain to come and wash all the scum off the streets. And it all culminates in an OTT bloodbath. Hannah, Jen, riddle me this. Travis Bickle, heroic vigilante or psychotic racist incel? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, as I was watching it, I was going to text you both and say, basically an incel, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's something slightly more complicated than that. But in the glib answer to your question, yes. I mean, he definitely, absolutely 100% would be on QAnon. I actually suspect that Travis Bickle might be Q. <laughs> <laughs> now I come to think of it, he would have stormed the capital. He is that. Yeah, I thought. But something that isn't really mentioned in this, which I think would have significant effect on his psyche and isn't covered mm. at all in this, possibly because it was happening when it was happening, is the effects yes. of the Vietnam War on him. I saw the most amazing documentary about a group of soldiers who were forced to do two consecutive tours in Afghanistan. And when they came back, which they, they reckon is really bad for your mental health, and when they came back, at least four of them ended up in prison for things going as far as murder, for like assault, for things like that. Because once you lose respect for human life, it's really difficult to gain it back. Mm -hmm. And that isn't covered yeah. here. So I would say in defence of Travis Bickle, there's probably a bit more going on than he's no, an incel. I but, agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I did, when I was watching it, I did think, because I've read about it before, but I've never actually watched it before. So I remember thinking he's supposed to be like a, a veteran, isn't he? They do mention at one point that he was in the Marines, I think, but you're right, they don't cover it at all. And they do have, as you say, in the States, they have a preposterously high rate of mental health problems and um, imprisonment and offending and homelessness in in their veterans. I mean, I think they have quite a high rate of mental health problems in um, in former servicemen in in most places. But yeah, in the states, it's mm. really really bad, and which has always struck me as a bit of a weirdly ironic situation, given the amount of love they show their kind of um, you know in oh, service. Yeah. They love a gold star mother. But when their kid's actually, like, if he becomes homeless, like, they don't yeah. give a fuck. Absolutely. I had actually seen this a couple of times before. I think, like, the first time I was at university. 
And the second time it's probably I was living in this house. And it's one of those films that I don't generally ever have a conversation about because it's the sort of film that if you don't like it, and I'm not saying I don't like it, but if you don't like it, someone will bore you for three hours about why you're wrong. <laughs> so I can't say I've ever really had a conversation, even though I've seen it twice, I've never had a conversation about it. Well, thank you, listener, for joining us on this three-hour podcast where I <laughs> talked to Hannah there, about Taxi Driver. There is loads and loads and loads to talk about, obviously, just going to that murder scene where he desaturates it. It's so weird, that scene, that in parts it looks like Ray Harryhausen. Mm. It actually looks like stop-motion animation. It's so odd. And it's sort of baffling now, isn't it, that that's what made sure it didn't get the X rating, which Scorsese was completely worried about mm. getting. And that's what made it feel less violent. And actually, it was supposedly one of the most violent scenes ever, ever filmed. But now it it doesn't even look that much compared to what we see now, right? We've had this conversation so many times. I don't mind violence. If they show what violence looks like, then I don't actually mind that. If people get shot and you just see them like slumped in a corridor, that's the violence that bothers me. The eighteen violence. I'm very squeamish. I actually think if you show someone go into a brothel and take out three people, that is going to be fucking nasty. And it is nasty. So actually the violence and the blood doesn't actually concern me at all. Yeah, you're right. I think if if you don't see the repercussions, it absolutely undermines the violence and people go away with a really incorrect view of what violence yeah. actually does and is. You don't want to be glorifying it, absolutely. I, I, I agree with what both of you have said 100%, but just for me personally, I am very, very squeamish. And that yeah, oh, that's fair enough. And the other thing that I've just got as a note here that I wanted to mention, you talk about his improvised scene. I don't know how much of it was improvised, but I do know the scene in which he buys the guns was improvised. And I didn't write his name down, but the guy who plays <laughs> Easy Andy, and it's actually my favourite scene in it, where he starts offering what else he has that he might want, was entirely improvised. Where he's like, do you want up us down? I said, I've got weed, got barbiturates, I've got a Cadillac, I've got, like, <laughs> that was all made up on the spot as well. So that is Incredible. impressive. It's quite interesting. The improvisation leads really neatly on to the fact that the low budget meant that they relied on all sorts of stuff, including, like, improvisation and Scorsese, an actor was hurt. Scorsese took over the role of the psychotic passenger who wanted to murder his wife. It also means they relied on New York to light itself. Sound guys climbed into the boot of the cab and Scorsese crouched in the back seat footwell to direct just because they didn't have the money for the big operations. And I think if they'd made this film with money, I don't think it would be as good, which is kind of putting my cards on the table there. Because it all adds to that kinetic, frenetic feel and that skin crawling intensity of seeing the world from Travis's rapidly unravelling point of view. But mm. You're there with him the whole time. The music. Yeah. Can we talk about the music? It's terrible. I hate it. It's the score awful. is just awful. It's, just... it's the worst score in the world, apart from <laughs> the one for There Will Be Blood, which is just basically this screeching <laughs> noise the whole way through it. Well, this will probably make you two very happy. Composer Bernard Herrmann died a few hours after recording the film's score. <laughs> the curse! The curse is back! We keep rating or dating stuff, they keep dying spontaneously in the past. I was thinking about this. It is kind of an occupational hazard, isn't it? In, in a section called Rated or Dated. Yeah. Yeah, Should we just absolutely. rename it Are They Old Dead films. You know. yeah. Dead yeah, exactly. The, the things that I find most notable about it, apart from the stuff with Iris, which we can get into, is that it, it it's sort of an, a contradiction because anger is always something that's portrayed as being really impulsive, essentially. But he's like a pre-planner. 
So it's mm. weird that he is both spontaneous and a pre-planner. And I don't know whether that's part of his breakdown or his psyche or whatever and the second thing is that it's basically a film that argues that the best way to fix toxic masculinity is with one huge act of toxic masculinity toxic masculinity will eat itself well scorsese described it as his feminist film Mm. interesting (laughs) okay okay martin talk me through it Pretty much because of what Hannah's just said, if you take toxic masculinity, although I'm not sure that was a phrase when he was interviewed back in the 70s, no. but if you take it to its like natural conclusion. Well, I suppose he is quite obviously saying that toxic masculinity is bad. Like, there's nothing about Travis Bickle that's aspirational, well, is there? Well, that or depends like... on what you think of that final scene, Jen, and whether Travis is redeemed to just reset and start all over again. And, and it also depends on just... how much you put in the fact that John Hinckley got obsessed with Jodie Foster and then shot Reagan. Tried to kill Reagan, yeah. You could probably argue uh, Travis Bickle was trying to do some sort of good thing by, you know, the actions of the final scene. But ultimately, like, he's just a bit fighty, isn't he? Like, he's oh, just... I meant by the final scene, I, might, I mean when he's back in his cab and he's being hailed as a hero. Oh. So, oh, yeah, he is a bit yeah, fighty because I... actually the only reason or one of the reasons he goes and tries to rescue Iris is because he's had a failed assassination attempt and he's still feeling quite cross about it. Yeah, where am I going to put this energy? It'll be a shame oh, to waste it. Exactly. We've all been there. I just want to <laughs> go for a run. Have a run. Yeah, yeah. Go for a run. <laughs> it's like football hooligans. I don't think they really like, they're not angry about football, are they? They just want to have a fucking yeah. fight. Yeah, is he absolutely. redeemed at the end? Or that is he? Because yeah. in answer to your mm. off-mic question, Jen, what happened at the end? Well, there is a theory, yes. of course, that he died and that the last bit is a dream, which is aided mm. by the fact that the last bit could be perceived as being largely unbelievable that he would now be a hero and would have healed so quickly and be working again. And Sybil Shepherd would have some sadness for how she had treated him when how she treated him was absolutely the perfect way to treat a dude she, like She was that. correct, <laughs> yeah. So it could be seen as a fantasy, but then given that the final shot shows that he could just go off again at any moment, Mm. I actually think what the ending means is that America, and America in particular, we do it a little bit, but America in particular, has a thing about bad guys and does hail bad guys and heroise bad guys. Look at at what happened when O.J. Simpson was tried. Look at how everyone was wearing T-shirts supporting O.J. Simpson. The woman that I interviewed last year about that book, my friend Anna, what she called Rachel Deloche something. Oh, fucking hell, I should remember that. Apologies. With the, with the woman, the woman who, who tricked her, into her she lived money. in New York and she yeah. saw people wearing T-shirts with that woman's face on. There is something weird about, particularly with like New York, but there is something weird about America. So I think what it actually shows is that America worships these sort of people, but fuck it, they're going to do it again. Personally, that's that, it. That's how I read the ending. So Scorsese and what? Schrader have both said it wasn't a dream. And in fact, until pretty recently, a few years ago, there was talk of a sequel. And Schrader has said that the subsequent films he's made after Taxi Driver are basically the same character growing up. So, yeah, it it, it kind of works better, I think, if it is a dream. That's, you know, his last thoughts are that he is redeemed and that people hail him as a hero because he wants to be noticed, right? He's really lonely. But the reality is what Hannah's just described and a big old push of that reset button when you see him immediately get really frustrated about something right at the end. Wow. Well, what I thought would happened was that he had dreamt the whole thing, not that he was dying, 
or that he had died, but that he had dreamt the oh, whole thing. Oh, that he hadn't gone and in, in there. in fact, the end was his reality. But it wouldn't make any sense, because why would Iris's parents be like, oh, well done for rescuing our daughter. Also, the other thing I thought was... They looked well old in that photo. <laughs> they always do. I remember like when we watched Jaws for... Uh, Flicking. I was like, why are all the parents in their 80s? And they've got like six-year-old kids. Like Disney films. Yeah. So if she's not living with them, if she's in the situation she's in, there's probably a problem, isn't there? A reason she ran away. I wondered whether the raw essence of New York in the 70s, which is really captured, I think, in this film, that decade of political upheaval, loads of crime, sexual exploitation. I wonder if it made either of you think of The Juice? Yes, it did, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It had the same kind of seedy undercurrent, didn't it? Which I guess they were actually capturing in Taxi Driver, whereas they were kind of recreating in The Deuce. But yeah, it it 100%... I I would actually say that watching The Deuce, in many ways, made watching Taxi Driver, that bit of it, slightly more understandable. Particularly her relationship with sport, Harvey Keitel, who is her pimp. They actually don't tell you that much about that relationship, really. There's not that much in Mm. it. But because of all the stuff that I know about watching other stuff, like the deuce, about the dynamics between pimps and prostitutes actually made it easier to understand, if that makes sense. Yeah, the coercive control and, you know, physical control. Absolutely that. So I wonder if people watching it who haven't watched stuff like that don't, like, understand how girls are turned out by pimps, if you know what I mean. It's odd. It gets us on to Jodie Foster, because what I find strange about this is it's... Obviously, she was 12 when she filmed it, and apparently nobody knew how to die, and not even Scorsese knew how they were going to deal with this. But Iris, the character, has become... I know she's the source of the denouement, but it says something weird about how fascinated people are about the sexualization of girls. That she is the image that people remember from Taxi Driver, even though, apart from him shouting in the mirror. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. I think she's, no, I agree she's with more you, I vital to Travis Bickle as well, because that brief interaction where she climbs in the cab and says, just take me away, just take me away. And then Harvey Keitel, the sport, obviously drags her away and throws a crumpled $20 note at Travis. He he uses that. That goes in his pocket. And even though we don't, you're right, we don't see Iris again for a long time film-wise, it's always there and it kind of underlines in his head, I think, what he does and what, where he goes and how much he sees the streets as dirty. But we, it's, she is really thinly sketched, essentially, is what I'm saying. Mm. There's, like, very little of her. I, I, what understanding I have of her comes from historical knowledge of, of things rather than Taxi Driver. So she, yeah, she right. contains a sort of outsized role in it. And I know it's because she was 12, so, like I say, there's certain things that the, the law says that you can only film a certain amount at that age. Well, actually, I don't know if it did at that time. But certainly there's appropriate. And the scene that she has with Harvey Keitel, which is necessarily chased because she is 12 years old, mm. comes across as so fucking weird because it's not what would have happened in that situation. But you can't do what would have happened with a 12 year old girl on screen. So it leaves in this really odd place, I thought. Mm. Her older sister actually stood in as her mm. body double in the, the more sexual scenes. No, but he also probably would have been violent to her at that point and or shout and scream at yeah. him. You can't do that with a 12-year-old girl. So he ends up doing that odd thing where he just hugs her. And actually, his mouth is, is hidden for most of that, so I don't even think he's actually saying the things that he says to Jodie Foster. That was probably added later. Mm. Mm. 
I think you're right. Like when I've, as again, I've not seen it before, but it's one of those films that obviously you hear a lot about because it is quite groundbreaking and, and, and very famous, et cetera, et cetera. In my mind, Jodie Foster as Iris was a much, much bigger part of it or, or much more central. I mean, she is central to it, as you say, Mick. But yeah, in my mind, it was much more about him driving around New York with a child and all the other stuff. She's just not in it much, really. Yeah, she doesn't get much yeah. screen time. Yeah. But I mean, if Judy Dench can win an Oscar for literally walking yeah. over a coat in Shakespeare <laughs> in Love, you know, I think maybe, maybe Iris deserves to be a big old character in our heads. A very key question that obviously needs asking is whether either of you have ever been taken on a date to a porn film. <laughs> no. I yeah, I that was wow. <laughs> Bold. Just wow. They do set it up nicely at the start in that when he goes to the first one, he actually buys popcorn. I mean, who buys popcorn to go and see a porn film? So in a way, it sets up that how he how normalized he has. And fun fact, the woman he buys the popcorn off, I think, is his first wife. Oh, wow. Robert that De Niro. There's a lot of casual racism in it, isn't there? Yeah, although interestingly, apparently the first Harvey Keitel and the guy who ran the hotel and the guy that, that got shot were all, all originally written to be black. But Martin Scorsese changed it, possibly because it wasn't a good look to have your only black characters be the baddies that get shot in a... That was exactly why he right, changed yeah. it. That he was told that he couldn't have it like that. Schrader couldn't have it like that because it would cause it could cause a riot. So yeah, it was well, just fair enough. Yeah, racist slaughter at the end because Travis I mean, is he is racist and he doesn't necessarily say anything. He uses one word in his diaries, which obviously he's kind of we hear him reading his diaries or writing his diaries. But there are some bits of camera work that imply that when he says the streets need cleaning up, he is coming from a racist point of view. But Travis Bickle absolutely would yeah, be totally. racist. He would be racist. And, and he's not, you know, he's not portrayed as someone who you want to aspire to or do you know what I mean? Like, he's not a nice guy, is he? Or, or maybe that's a very simple way of looking at it. But you know what I mean? It's interesting, though, because if we're going to talk about sort of like we were sort of earlier about sort of men and how men deal with stuff. Interestingly, he does do something right in this, which is he reaches out to someone and they just yes. go, yeah, fuck mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Basically. It, yeah, yeah, maybe maybe it is his conversation with the wizard is the turning point for when he actually goes, oh, I've just been told, fuck it, I can only do what I can do. Let's get me some guns. Mm. Yeah. We've been recording forever. Yeah. And so the question, is Taxi Driver rated or dated? I mean, it's very good. I'm going to say it's, it's rated. Good, it? I think it's rated, yeah. Yes, I think it's rated. I mean, clearly aspects of it, like New York, look very dated, but the content, I think, is still really terrifyingly relevant. Okay. Jen, it's just me and thee next week. What are we watching? Next week, Mickey, we are watching 1991's Sleeping with Cheering. the Enemy. That's something to look forward mm. to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to organise all the tins in my cupboard in a way that he would approve. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.